Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to. Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we continue our pre-tournament coverage of the 2022 Australian Open. We know it's our job here at Crack Rackets to prepare you listeners for the next two weeks of action. That means breaking down this event from every angle, talking about the contenders, the dark horses, Americans, players we're irrationally excited for, and so much more. Of course, we'll break down the draws this weekend over on the mini break podcast feed we talked about the contenders on that feed as well but on this podcast today we're talking women's dark horses and of course the depth right now one of the standout features of the WTA tour feels like inherently any player ranked beyond number what 15 in the rankings could be a dark horse to do damage at this event certainly coming off of the U.S. Open we just saw what a dark horse can do in Emirata Kanu in Leila Fernandez as well but Look, it's going to be a really exciting event on the court. Certainly, it's been plenty of excitement dealt to us off the court, but you look at all the players we have competing here. Yes, no Serena Williams, but just no Carolina Pliskova, but just about everyone else competing in this 2022 Australian Open on the women's side. As such, this was a fantastic conversation. There was no one I could think of enjoying it more with than the guest we have joining us today, a returning champion on our show is Tennis.com and Tennis Channel editorial producer David Kane joining me for this discussion and not only do we name names like Azarenka, Kasakina, Bencic and more we also talk about the framework is anyone a dark horse given the current setup on the WTA tour given the depth we see in the women's game and then of course again we break down the names talk about the players we could see go on runs it is a fantastic conversation that I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy so without further ado let's get to it here is my conversation talking women's dark horses at the 2022 Australian Open with the one and only David Kane. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a man who is quickly ascending up the rankings in terms of most Crack Rackets podcast appearances. Of course, you know him best as an editorial producer for all things Tennis.com, Tennis Channel, returning champion to our Crack Rackets shows, our friend David Kane. David, welcome back. How are you doing today? Привет, Sasha. I feel like I'm number one on the Crack Records <laughs> guest rankings. I don't know. I, we got we to re- retabulate those points. We see where I am on the live rankings because those are never wrong. Yeah. You know, live rankings, you'd it would always be saying new career high, new career high, new career high for sure. You would be a Redbox champion. But 
you know, I'm trying to think. It depends what qualifies to be on that list. Like, full-time Cracked Rackets contributors like Chris Haliores, Matt Stokowiak, they've been doing it for so long. In terms of non-Cracked Rackets people, I mean, yeah, you're clearly top five. I would say you're up, you have surpassed some college coaches, which you know, that's sacred ground here at Cracked Rackets, David. That's how fondly we feel about you. Um, but yeah, it is great to have you on the show, and it's great to be able to talk about the tennis, right? Like, slowly but surely, hopefully now, I mean... Well, we'll talk about the press conference in a second last night, how funny that was in our uh, lesson in supply chain management. But it is like it is the draws are out. The draw was, you know, was not canceled. Turns out we are going to have draws. They're out. It's time to start talking about the tennis. You getting excited? I mean, first of all, I may only have between an hour or three days, depending on when my visa gets canceled. So <laughs> we'll, this, we'll just let this conversation roll and see where we go. But yeah, I'm excited to finally get into the tennis. It feels, still feels a little surreal, this sort of post-modern pandemic Aussie swing that we've slowly grown accustomed to with multiple tournaments in the same city. You know, when you grow up used to the, I mean, I'm from the Gold Coast days, so I'm, I'm used to that that kind of a calendar, but, you know, getting used to the Brisbane, Sydney, and now Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, like I was used to that kind of a rhythm. So I'm still kind of getting into the swing of things. I feel like we've finally gotten a chance to see most of the top men and women at least once on the court or on the practice court, if you're one in particular. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I think I think we're ready to really see where the rubber hits the road on this and seeing uh, the the meaning, the matches that matter, who's going to come out on top. It's an unrelated tangent, but we did a preview podcast with Jeff Sackman, who subsequently is doing Gil Gross's show. If you do mine and Gil's show back to back, should that be called the eyebrow double? Like, do you think that's a fair assessment? I mean, it's it's what I'm going to spend the rest of my career striving for. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I mean, I'll probably have to Photoshop myself in an Australian background to trick Gil that I'm I'm on site again because that's the only reason why I got on last time. <laughs> yeah, he is. Uh, I mean, tough scheduler, tough scheduler, no doubt about that. That's because he only has to fill one show a week. You got to do 20 shows a week. You get returning champions, but that's not the only it's, reason. It's we a narrow to... spot between the eyes, right there. That I, try yeah. to, I try to slip through when I can. <laughs> exactly. Great hair, though. Great head of hair. Um, no, to to your point, it it, it does feel like it, I very much enjoy that we get back to back weeks in Australia before the Australian Open begins, and I know that's always been a thing, but it felt like last year the attention on those events was heightened just due to the fact that, A, everyone was in the quarantine bubble and we hadn't seen everyone compete together like that in so long. And it was just, it was really delightful. And I think they have managed to retain that focus. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, maybe it's just me being more focused now given what my job is. But it does feel like, to your point, we've gotten to see everyone compete. You know, everyone's on site early there, partly because you have to be, right, with the Australian government rules. But with everyone being there, everyone has taken the opportunity to play at least one of the two weeks of warm-up events. And as such, you know, I, I want you, we have you on the show here today to talk about the women's dark horses entering this Australian Open. I could make a case for like 13 different people. I mean, a lot of players have played well. But it, it's always – I'm always hesitant, you know, with my overreactions here to the first two weeks. That said, a lot of players have looked rejuvenated here uh, to start. That's been my takeaway. Definitely. It's it's an interesting conversation we're about to have about so-called Australian Open, open dark horses because by the numbers, we're going to be looking at a lot of players who you would – assumed to in other conversations be the favorites be those top eight seeds but because of past struggles in the last year or so they're not where they're 
where you would imagine they would be ranked, but at the same time, a lot of them are trending up, whether you're talking about an Azarenka or a Halep players that you're used to seeing really anchor quarters of draws being kind of snuck in there as potential uh, tricky third and fourth round matches for the top eight seeds, the, the, the ostensible favorites of this tournament. So I think in some ways it looks a little different, but in other ways, the landscape is, is a little similar, maybe more similar than you would have expected given sort of the regime change we've been undergoing in the last 18 months. I think that's completely fair. And I think it's time to put the word generational shift to bed. The shift has happened. Like the next generation of players on both the men's and women's side have arrived. And yes, it's still Novak Djokovic competing and winning Grand Slam titles uh, predominantly on the men's side. But obviously you look at the Grand Slam champions last year on the women's side. I think Ashley Barty's the oldest of the group, I'd have to check between her and Krejcikova. Krejcikova might be slightly older than Barty. Let's see, Barty, 25, Krejcikova, 26. So Krejcikova slightly older. But your oldest Grand Slam champion last year on the women's side was 26 years old. And, you know, yes, the Radakanu breakthrough at the U.S. Open was remarkable. But, of course, seeing a new player break through, I think we were all maybe not mentally prepared to see Layla Fernandez make a jump all the way to the final, but we knew she had success. Yeah, but we knew she had success in her, right? She had won some WTA titles and started to build some clout and pedigree on the WTA Tour, not Grand Slam final pedigree. But, you know, you look for Arena Sabalenka last year, still 23 years old, and, you know, Conteve 26, Sakurai 26, Bedosa now 24, obviously Shiantek 20. You know, even the old guard now, Muguruza, who's, it really is, she's the oldest player in the top, uh, excuse me, Pliskova's the oldest at 29, but Muguruza, 28 years old, like, none of those players are 30, A, but B, they now feel like the old guard, the veterans, and that there are a bunch of players, you know, nipping at the bit to break through, solidify themselves at the top of the game. Case in point, you know, Naomi Osaka right now, 14th in the world, justifiably. Like, I don't think anyone would say she deserves to be higher in the rank just given how few events she's played and given how well so many other players have played throughout the course of this season. With all of that said, well, I guess, uh, you know, before I get to my next question, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's time to put it? We're not in the midst of a generational shift. The shift has happened. I mean, certainly on the men's side, I would say that's the case. I mean, I think we've really seen sort of the the middle fallout in terms of the generations where like we're looking now at those younger 22, 23, 24 year old guys, whereas the 25 through 29s have somewhat receded from the landscape, I think. We had Murray versus Goffin last night. And it's like, wouldn't you love to hear 2017's reaction? If you knew like, oh, it's an early quarterfinal, 2022, Murray versus Goffin. How exciting is that going to be? And it's like five years later, eh. Like, you know, unfortunately, it ends with a withdrawal, and that wasn't shocking. <laughs> Am I wrong? Yeah, I, I, yeah it's true. I mean, I, I think with, with the women's side, it's um, the generational shift. I mean, it's an interesting one because I felt like we were starting to go through a proper shift before the pandemic. I think I brought this up before on the podcast, and then things have really gotten shook up in all kinds of ways, and we've seen some players really benefit from it, some players recede, and are just starting to come back. So I think – it always feels like we're a year away from this sort of ideal WTA environment. It felt like we were really on the on the precipice of it right before lockdown two years ago. And and maybe with what with the results, as I said, of some of those now quote unquote sub top ten players, your Osaka's, Halep's, Azarenka's, starting to play a bit more consistent and better tennis. 
we might see a more proper mix of what we believe to be the best players in the game. So I think all in all, it's, it's, it's something to be optimistic about. Yeah, and that's what makes, again, the tennis at this Australian Open so exciting. It's what makes the fact that that tennis has been drowned out by all the off-court noise surrounding Novak Djokovic so disappointing. But again, we're not talking Djokovic on today's pod. You and I have already done it three separate shows. So if you want to hear our thoughts on that, you can go check out those shows here on the Mini Break podcast feed. You can go see both mine and David's smiling faces on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel as well. But again, why did I want to have you on the show today to answer two questions? A, is there any age where it becomes inappropriate to continue to eat Eggo waffles every morning? I mean, I was about 25 or 26 when I realized that they were really too fattening to constitute <laughs> a meal like a healthy meal I, I was like oh i'm i'm going on a diet i'm gonna have a waffle in the or have a waffle or two in the morning that's a great idea and then i wasn't losing any weight and i was like it's probably because of the goddamn waffles but i mean in an ideal situation if you could decorate them and, and smear some nutella on them there's no incorrect age for oh. an, a waffle at any time of day i would say so, but i wouldn't don't make it a healthy breakfast it's not part of a balanced breakfast well I don't eat healthy. Thankfully, I have a lot of tennis. To, well, I don't eat healthy. I say that definitively. I didn't mean it like, well, I do mean it like that. I don't eat healthily. Now, I am still 26, so that is a blessing. But the thing is for me, I mean, this is so stupid. Uh, we're fortunate enough we have an exercise bike in our garage. And so when I'm watching tennis, I'm, I'm cycling away. And that's where I'm like, oh, okay, I can get away with this. I don't think there's anything I enjoy more than the new, what are they, the Belgian waffle editions, like the fluffy one, the thick and fluffies, um, Eggo waffles. I I have like one a day. I mean, at least one a day. On the risque days, I'll go two. But I, I would say at least one a day. And I just, I what is it, Pearl Mining Company now? Whatever the syrup brand is, you guys all know the bottle I'm talking about. Like, I don't know if there are things in life I enjoy more than, like, being like, it's my waffle of the daytime. Like, let's rock and roll. And I just, I don't know how I'm going to be able to part with it. Like, I know, God willing, someday someone's like, yeah, let's start a family. And there are kids involved. And then they're going to be like, let's have Eggos. And it's just going to... It's going to open Pandora's box for me again. And I'm like, I, at some point, I, I, what I'm asking is, so I do have to cut them out at some point. I would think, I mean, if you're going into them thinking, as I incorrectly did, that this was a low-calorie way to start the day, it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, But I, I do wish you the serenity to one day Lego your ego. Yeah. I, I do hope for that. <laughs> I will say this. You know, again, it's worth – if I have to work out to keep doing it my whole life just to enjoy – it's worth it. Like, that's how much I enjoy ego time. Um, you know, someone for the longest time, I thought putting, you know, margarine butter, whatever your flavor is, I'm a, I can't believe it's not butter sort of guy on a waffle was overrated. I was like, why would you do that when you can just put syrup? And then someone introduced to me the idea of putting both on said waffle. And I was just like, <laughs> brain explode. I was like, you don't do, I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, just try it. And thankfully I don't do that in my private waffling time. I'm just a straight syrup guy. But if you're doing that, you're in trouble because that stuff is crack, and I understand that. So that was question A, um, which just so you know, you got we're recording this right after today's waffle time. That's why it's on my mind. And uh, yeah, sorry, I bought groceries recently. It's, it's a big deal in the Gruskin household uh, in Crack Rackets headquarters. But B to talk about the dark horses on the women's side entering this Australian Open singles competition and. You know, again, the reason I wanted to talk about the generational shift, the relative age group of this group uh, competing here in Australia, is because I think defining the term dark horse on the women's side in particular is so difficult 
right now. Now, obviously, we had four different Grand Slam champions last year. But if you want to you know, go by our definitions of Dark Horse, and just so you listeners know what I asked David to do, come up with a list of five. I said you can do two-seeded players outside the top ten seeds. You can do you know, a, a player inside the top 50, if you can give me a young gun as well, and someone outside the top 50 also to fulfill the list. I said really the fifth one's a wild card. You don't need that player ranked 33 to 50 because that's stupid. Um, I did ask for the young gun and then I suppose two wild cards. But, you know, the reason I wanted to bring all this up is because, again, what is your definition of a wild, uh, of a dark horse? Like if you're going by the traditional definitions of just the seeding, Naomi Osaka could be qualified as, an, as a dark horse this year. And that's ridiculous. Like Naomi Osaka is not a dark horse candidate. If she is healthy, if she's in the main draw of a hard court slam, I think Crack Rackets listeners who we know are the most educated – best informed fans in the business why they're not going to consider an osaka win a dark horse run they're not going to consider that surprising right traditionally you associate the term dark horse with surprise i think that's really hard to do right now in the women's game because again i could paint you a picture where number 22 belinda benchich wins the 2022 australian open and i don't think that would shock you like and yet technically dark horse and so you know, again, what do you define as a dark horse, David? How difficult uh, – you know, I gave you some parameters, but how difficult was this exercise for you in delineating who a dark horse actually is at this point? First of all, could you imagine if after all that I was like, and my first dark horse is Naomi Osaka? You know, you gave me a smirk <laughs> that I was like, oh, no, did I just belittle one of his picks? I was like, I'm so sorry. But it is it is a bit of consternation that I did face where it felt kind of – it felt like cheating to be like, and my dark horse is this – top 20 former number one grand slam champion because it just felt like well i mean relative to some of the top eight seeds who came in with variable form and health like are are they larger favorites just because they're a bit higher in the rankings and as i said to start the podcast a lot of these players are not just coming in with tremendous pedigree they're trending upward they're winning titles they're making quarters and semifinals of these warm-up events so they're all looking pretty good. And so in, in that sense, it felt like those players are more dark horses or, or more favorites than dark horses. But at the same time, if you're making it, I think there is a clearer delineation when you're talking about a Naomi who is defending champion here and, and a two-time Australian Open champion and seem to be playing pretty well and, 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 um, and that. But I think, you know, I still think there are players in the who could technically fulfill that criteria if only because what are words if not having a proper definition? And if you're going to look at, at a dark horse as someone who is ranked lower, then you know it's 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 a it's a happy day for a better, I would imagine. I don't know how that has all calibrated. That's like that's a Kale Hammond question. How these yeah. you know sort of weird flipped rankings have contributed to sort of the betting landscape? Because well, if you're coming into tennis and looking at number five seed Maria Sicario, she's a top five seed, but you know maybe not looking as good as as a Halep or even a Benchage, to your point. No, I'll give you some disqualifying ones. So, like, Naomi Osaka is plus 700. That's second in terms of the odds right now, according to our okay. friends at DraftKings. That, you're not a dark horse. If you're second via odds makers, if you're the defending champion, you haven't lost yet this year. Yeah, she retired with an injury, but I think that disqualifies you. Simona Halep, coming off of a title. She's fifth, according to odds makers, plus 1,400 again. I think she's slightly disqualified as a dark horse. I don't think that would be surprising. Now, she's had injuries. Oh, no. 
Dar, are you about to walk out on this podcast? I apologize. Because uh, I said, again, you could be ranked outside the top 10. Maybe I should have said top 15. Because... I, I, I got another person that'll, that I think will solve this unless you bring them up okay, shortly well, thereafter. Elena Rabakina. Like, to me, she's not a dark horse. Like, she can just straight up win the thing, in my opinion. I don't think mm-hmm. that would be a shock from what I've seen. Again, I test-wise, I would say she's been top five, just most impressive I've seen of any performances, you know, over the course of the first two weeks. And again, it's a small sample size, but that power tennis this early in the year, you know, her continued improvement throughout the course of her career, I don't think that's a dark horse pick. Now, you know, Pavlichenkova, that would be a dark horse pick. Sonia Kennan? That would be a dark horse pick. Vika's the bubble case because yeah, does everyone you know we are eighteen months removed from her being the second best player over three weeks in New York and like when you have a run like that in recent memory, I don't she she's a fringe case for dark horse pick. I, so I probably should have said outside the top fifteen and not inside outside the top ten. But it, it is – I just think there's a lot of border cases. Like, I, again, I imagine Halep's on your list given your uh, visual reaction uh, to me saying that. We can start there with her. I mean, we'll make the case for why she's a dark horse. Well, I mean, first of all, you, you, you covered a bit there. So I just want to go yeah. back. I feel like with Rabakina, I would still personally consider her a dark horse. I think if she had beaten Barty to win the title last week, I think I would have maybe moved her up into that, like – 1A tier of players that I think could win the tournament. Conversely, or 2A, I would say. 2A. Yeah, Maybe not 1A. 2A. Yeah. Yeah. If it's... Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Vika, I actually... It's... Yeah, it's tough because I... So much of her 2020 summer felt like something of a mirage, to be perfectly honest, where it just felt like the, she had the right number... The right combination of opponents in the right order, and it kind of just allowed her to get on a roll. And then when she finally did run into sort of an inform opponent in Naomi, things did kind of, the wheels did kind of fall off the bus for her. And she didn't really make that push in the third set that you would have expected based off of someone who had been so dominant to that point. Um, but why I would have listed Asarenka as the dark horse, which is actually the one that I'm, I will stick with that one is largely based off of how she played at Indian Wells. I mean, the fact that she played that final as well as she did and played that week as well as she did, you know, that's a tournament that she's performed really well at in the past. I think that was for me, and then coming into Australia, getting the revenge on Palapadosa, who then who's turned around and played really great tennis this week in Sydney, I do up her chances a little bit. I feel like Azarenka, as someone who has not has only made one final at a Grand Slam in the last eight years. I think when she made the final in Australia, that was in New York, that was the first one since 2013. So it's been a while since she's been that far in a slam where there's a bit more recency with a Simona Halep. So I do understand why she would be considered maybe more of a favorite, less of a dark horse, just because her resume is so much more recent winning those two slams in 18 and 19. Whereas Azarenka's last slam was 2013. Well, the case I would make for why Victoria Azarenka is not a dark horse right now, a, and again, it's one rating, but you look at the tennis abstract ELO rating, she's fifth right now in overall ELO rating. And you look at just her results over the past, again, you want to go, all the way to 2020 as well, 18 and six overall that season. You look for her on the hard courts in particular, 14 and four, you know, Cincinnati title or whatever, final of the U.S. Open, final in Ostrava where she gets knocked out by Sabalenka. You look for her last year, she was 18 and six on hard courts. You know, Yas loses first round to Pagula at the Australian Open. I think that's a loss that is appreciated in value. Her losses, by the way, on hard courts last year. You ready for this? Conteve, who she withdrew against, Pagula, Muguruza, who she withdrew against, Bardi in three sets, Sabalenka, Bardi, 
Muguruza three sets, Muguruza who she withdraws against, Bedosa seven six in the third at Indian Wells. Like I think we've done this in a past episode where you listed off Vika losses and asked me to rate whether they were good or bad. And I think a lot of them I did end up calling bad. Fair. <laughs> I mean, especially that US Open one against Muguruza. I think that was but, one that was really a winnable one for her. Winnable though and bad, I think, are different things. And the point I'm trying to make, and from an eye test perspective, I'm, I'm a tough judge. Yeah, you always are, David. <laughs> the Russian what, judge. No, that's why we like having you on the show and you know, again, watching her play Bedosa, she was hitting the ball so cleanly. Phenomenally. Yeah, just striking the ball so purely. And I thought she was doing the same against Sviantek in uh, the quarterfinal. And Sviantek just made that match so physical and got her stretched to the outer thirds. And I will say this. She did look a step slow in Adelaide. Even though she was striking the ball extraordinarily well, she just wasn't quite moving to the outer thirds of the court. I would say the way she was in New York and Cincinnati and uh, during the Western Southern, excuse me, and... You know, I do think she's had now another week to get that, you know, half step back. And with how well she was striking the ball, her run of success on hard courts over the past two, three years, I don't know. She just made the Indian Wells final. Like, that's why it wouldn't be surprising. We've just seen her make a run like this. And so that's why it's fringed our course to me. Now, I, I'll look at the draw, and I have it in front of me. I'll look at it in a moment. But I don't – like, I – I do, I do think she can do damage, like no doubt about that. I think if you're looking at Azarenka this year, there's absolutely a world where she makes quarterfinals, semifinals of this event. You look for she's in the Bedosa Krejcikova section. It would be round of 16, I believe, against uh, Krejcikova. Krejcikova. Yeah, quarterfinal against Bedosa. Her round of 32 match would be a currently not in form Alina Svitolina right now, who I think would yeah, qualify. That's if part doesn't. of. That's another reason why. Yeah. She's got a nice section of the good. draw. Yeah, second she she should very I think very likely to make the second week. Yeah. Yeah, and so all right, so she's Sorry, dark, Alina. Yeah, I <laughs> know. So so we're yeah, exactly. But so she is a dark horse on your list. She was one yeah. of them. All right. I'll stand by. I'll stand by that one. I'm, I I could be or I could be convinced to to bump Halep down or bump her up, I guess as it were. But. Oh, I like that. But can I give you another and it's not just a ra- rapid reaction in my opinion to the success she's had here to start the season, but it's really a reaction to the success she's had over the last 18 months. And I think she does fall more squarely in the dark horse candidate. Do I think she can win the tournament? No, not really. Do I think she can make a quarterfinal sort of run, knock out a seed or two along the way, and she's going to have a particularly tricky, I believe, third-round matchup as the seed? Uh, I'm, of course, referring to Daria Kasakina, who, in my opinion, it hasn't just been here to start the season, where, of course, she makes Melbourne semifinals before getting blitzed by Anisimova, but has beaten Kenan, Mertens, and Muguruza this week in Sydney. You look for her over her last 52 weeks, David, 42-19. and 19 over that run. So she's winning 70% essentially of her matches. You look for her on hard courts in uh, specific 30-11, you know, winning 73% of her matches. She's, you know, holding serve at career high percentages, breaking serve near or at her career high percentages as well. And something I've noticed in particular, there's just a difference to her game style than some of the other game styles you see at the top of the women's game. Her ability, A, her fluidity, just everything about her game is elastic. And her ability to stretch you in the outer thirds of the court against Muguruza, she did such a good job of changing directions, hitting behind Muguruza, going short angle to open up all the space down the line. 
she's athletic enough as well to absorb some of the big hitters. And I thought she did a really good job of absorbing that first strike of Muguruza. Of course, she's fit enough to match up with the Halleps of the world, the Sviantecs of the world. Now, Sviantec would be her third-round matchup, and I think that's a particularly difficult one for her because Sviantec's got the combination of big weapons and fit enough to hang with you physically. So I, I just think that's a tough combo for her there. But I like Kasakina's game. Like, the second serve hangs. Yes, I know. But, man, she's just an athlete. Like, I, I, I think her and Tommy Paul are very similar players. And I think Tommy Paul would be on a lot of people's men's dark horse list. And, like, I, I, again, they're just they're enjoyable to watch. And I, I, I think Kasakina's playing well. She's fit. And it's just a little different. Like, she can do a lot of different things. See, I would compare Kasakina more to Shvantec than I would to Tommy. Although, I'm maybe I'm a, that's maybe a bit of my ATP inexperience, but I feel like Tommy is a bit more of a flat, flat hitter. No, than like a, I don't know that forehand's kind of loopy. Like again, I, they're very similar in the way they go, you know, yes, they can both hit the line drive on the forehand, but they like to hit the high and heavy balls. They like to go down the line. They like to mix in the slice as well. I, I think they're pretty, like, I, I think Tommy's a little bit more aggressive and moving in moving forward than Kasakina is in the way just I think there's more net action in men's tennis than there is in women's tennis. But I think there's a lot of foundational similarities between the two. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, yeah, it's, it, is, it is interesting at least to compare Kasakina and Shvansek. It feels like in many ways Kasakina is sort of like the proto-Iga, you know, like yeah, just a few sure. years, like the slightly newer model. Um, I think the reason why I held back on Kasakina was because I was so impressed by how Iga started the season. And she has been pretty consistent to start these major tournaments. Hasn't always gotten over the line. I think that was a lot of the the pushback against the so maybe the more apoplectic uh, takes about Iga last year that she wasn't backing up her phenomenal run to the French Open. Well, she was making the third, fourth round of these slams and just maybe running into some slightly better opponents. But I did happen to pull up that the last time that Iga and Daria played was in Eastbourne last summer. And we went three sets, but um, Daria only only lost one game in the second and third set when she went on to win that match. Now that's on grass, it's a slightly different surface, but um, that does give me a bit more pause to see what uh, Dasha can do, because I do feel like the winner of that potential section would make it out of... Um, would make it to the quarters because I'm, I'm maybe less confident in the, in the Petra slash Kirstea in a rematch of last year's first round um, Pavlyuchenko of a section. I feel like we've, there's been so much pressure on, on Nastia to finally make that top 10 debut. And she's got 2020 quarterfinal points to defend. It, although this is maybe arguably her best tournament um, in the past, I, I, I would give the edge more to Ego or Daria out of that one. I do think it's a good call that whoever makes it out of that one will, will, will go pretty far. Maybe Iga farther if she goes if she's the one that that wins the match. Well, I think that's the swing match for Kasakina. Certainly in the draw, that's the one she's going to have to get over the hump if she does. Now things open up for her again. There's just a lot to like about Kasakina's game. The break percentage forty four point two. That's a top ten number amongst top fifty players last year on the WTA tour. Now again, holding serve sixty two point eight percent. That's you know outside the top twenty in terms of hold percentage and. You know, she's bottom 10 in terms of second serve win percentage. But those are things every player can improve on inherently throughout the course of the, your career. If your worst metric is your second serve win percentage, generally speaking, that is the thing you can work on more, whether it's making more first serves, whether it's being more aggressive with the second serve. There are tangible things you can do easily to make those fixes. And I think I've seen her make those fixes here. Again, she looked so good yesterday. 
against Muguruza, changing direction on Garbine. Again, absorbing that first strike. She did the same thing against Kennan in the first round. I thought she was just better than Mertens in that second round match as well. I am... You're right. It's a tough draw, but I do think if a top 10... And by the way, shout out to Sviantek, only WTA player last season to make a round of 16 at every slam. Like, I think that consistency matters. So to the Iga haters, I don't know why you are. Like, you're you're just on the wrong path here, my friends. Um, but I think Kazakina's a little dark horsey. Like, I just think she's a good matchup against anyone because she can do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be one of those uh, tennis tastemaker matchups. The, the sure. player, the 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 intelligentsia who like watching that more crafty, point constructy tennis. Maybe not necessarily my first choice, but I can understand why people like it. You know, you can't spell intelligentsia without a l e x. So, with that in mind, yeah, when you spell it the right way. Um, with that in mind, David Kane, give me your next dark horse pick. I didn't mean but, to poo-poo uh, Halep, by no, the way. No, no, I'm I'm glad to I'm glad to switch it because I think this one maybe is a bit more interesting. My dark horse would actually be Belinda Benchic. I always because like I a think, Benchic talk. Yeah, much was made about this Barty Osaka section and how tough it was, and I feel like a lot of that emphasis was kind of inappropriately just and equally distributed. Where I mean, when you're looking at the Barty section out from the first to the fourth round. Maybe not a ton of opposition. Maybe maybe an inspired Camilla Georgie, who did play phenomenal tennis last summer to win um, in Canada. But no sense that that potential form is coming, although we never do know when it's coming. So it might end up coming for Barty um, when she least expects it. But I think the Osaka, excuse me, I think the Osaka section is really brutal. I mean, starting from Camilla Osorio in the first round, potential second round against Anisimova or other other boom against Yastremska, potential third round against Anisimova or Benchich. I mean, I talk about another bellwether match. The Anisimova-Benchich second round could be potentially really huge. I mean, it would be an opportunity for Anisimova to get back on the, back in the big time, get a rematch against Barty, a rematch of the 2019 Roland Garros semifinal that I will never stop talking about. Hmm. Um, it's It just feels so far from guaranteed that Osaka makes it out of this section because there are just so many landmines. But I think the biggest one is the fact that she is 0-3 against Belinda in tour level matches. 0-4, I believe, if you count uh, Hopman Cup. Shout out to Diego uh, Barbiani for making that distinction. But I mean, we do remember those matches in 2019 where, yes, Osaka was below her best um, in Spain and again at the U.S. Open. But Belinda really seemed to figure out that matchup. And that's that's a tough one for Naomi, who can be so in her head about these things, knowing that she's going to have to play someone that she's never beaten before and has lost to quite a few times, that may be troublesome for her going into that match. And so you hope for Naomi's sake that she's able to, you know, feel as confident as she can going into that match, assuming she gets that match, but it, not that it will be much easier if she gets into Samova instead. But I think if Belinda can get that win over Naomi on a big court, you know, feeling confident perhaps against Barty in the next round, who she did take a set from uh, in Shenzhen a couple of years ago in that wacky slow court. I mean, I think Barty would have, a rather, Benchich would have a better shot on a slightly quicker court, which the Australian Open will afford her, as anything would be. But yeah, I think this is an opportunity for Belinda, who has made some really deep runs at majors before. And so I think this is this is one where it feels like the attention really won't be on her heading into the tournament. And so 
that may play to her advantage as she maybe potentially sneaks up on uh, on Naomi. Belinda Bencic, 27-10 and 10 since Berlin last season and, you know, obviously wins the Olympics, finals of yeah. Berlin and, you know, quarterfinals U.S. Open as well. And I really thought she was the best shot. At, if anyone was going to knock out Radakanu, it was going to be her. She's unable to do it. But, yeah, she beat Iga there. She beat Pagula there. Was playing really good tennis, striking the ball so well once again. She's just finally healthy and fit and moving well. And she's never going to be the most fluid mover. Obviously, she wants to be playing front foot tennis and striking the ball early. And her ability to take that ball on the rise, change direction with it, knife these balls, you know, short angle, cross court. Belinda Bencic has never struggled at the tennis part. It's just been staying healthy and, you know, again, bringing the physicality needed week in, week out to be a top 10 player consistently on tour. I've been a longtime Bencic fan. Crack Rackets listeners have heard me wax about her on and on throughout the years. Things are lining up absolutely very, very well for her here in Australia to start the season. And, you know, again, you look for her at the start of last year, was able to make the round of 32 before getting knocked out by Mertens, finaled in Adelaide the next week as well. There are some points here for her to defend. And then, you know, again, she gets into a stretch after that, lost first round Doha last year, second round Dubai, second round Miami. This is an opportunity for Belinda Bentich to make a top 10 push. Get the because she's got plenty of points stashed at the end of the season, but she can make a big push here on this hard courts. You know, again, I I don't think we'll be talking about her as dark horse come the US Open, come Wimbledon if healthy. It's a good pick. I'm glad you brought her up. And because again, some other low-hanging fruit, you know, that's the term of I suppose the century for us here, or the term of the week here at Cracked Rackets. You look uh, for Belinda Bencic, hold percentage last season, 75%. That's a career high for her and was a top 20, top 15 sort of number. She broke serve 29%, which would be a really good number on the men's side, but is an atrocious number on the women's side. And it's below the top 50 average. I'm pretty sure it's 48th amongst top 50 players. It's just not going to cut it. Like, and Belinda Bencic foundationally is too good of a tennis player. And I understand she's, it's, it's, it's honestly a little Isner Opelkish equivalent in just the way she goes for her rips on that return of serve and just goes for broke. And just sometimes you just think, and I know she knows this, it's just like, you don't need to do that. You didn't need to paint the corner. You could have just played with depth there to open up the, the second, you know, shot in the rally. And I just feel like, again, it's it's a low-hanging fruit of improvement for her. Just be a little bit more disciplined and precise on that return of serve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, it's it's funny to even that I may have potentially forgotten the fact that Belinda won the Olympics. I mean, it just yeah. feels like in many ways such a long time ago, and you do go back to that U.S. Open quarterfinal, and it was just that one game against Raducanu in the quarterfinal that really – turned the tide for the Brit. It was, it was a much closer match in the first set to that point. It just felt like Belinda ran out of steam, sort of ran out of whatever, because it was, it was looking like a really big opportunity for Bencic to make another a slam semifinal, having done it uh, at the U S open in 2019. So it's, you know, this is someone with, with elite pedigree, someone who knows that they can step to the line and beat anyone on any given day. And, coming in where she's not going to be the overwhelming favorite that's for me she's probably the definition of a dark horse in the scenario because no one is really looking at her to win the title and i feel like potentially people could or should so did you like that i snaked that right at the beginning and i said like belinda Bencic, is she a dark horse would you be shocked damn i really did papoo all of your names here right at the beginning i unintentional david unintentional all right well sorry go ahead 
No, it's a rough, like I said, it's a rough one because like to look at the top eight, it's a much more interesting conversation, these quote unquote dark horses than the the quote unquote favorites because really it's, it's Barty and no one else really in the top 10. I mean, obviously there's been some good play. Conteve. Conteve. from Bedosa. It's, but other, and I mean, Muguruza lost. We've got to see how Krejcikova finishes the week. Is she still playing? She is. (laughs) She won like two and oh yesterday. Okay. Yeah, Australian so, Open Dark Horse, Krejcikova. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree with you. I do think this one is more fun. With that in mind, I've got three names to throw at you here. All Americans, you can pick the one that's most intriguing to you. There's going to be a lot of Anisimova love coming off of a title. It's going to be a very popular pick. She is the third, I would say, the third most impressive American that I've actually seen thus far uh, compete. And... I think she's tied with Shelby Rogers. I thought Shelby Rogers looked so good in week one. I thought she was moving well. I thought she was striking the ball so cleanly. I think, you know, she's got quarterfinal points to defend. I didn't look where she's at in the draw. You can fill in the blank for me there. Um, But the three Americans I'm locked in on from a dark horse perspective, Anisimova would be the obvious case. Madison Keys has looked so exceptional this week. And for the first time, you know, she's had issues with her health and you know had COVID at times last year and just was never able to find her rhythm at any point of the season she looks better in 2022 to start this year she's looked she's played better tennis here than I think I've seen her play since maybe 2019 2018 just how cleanly she's striking the ball she's been broken once in her three victories and you know last night outpower tennis Samsonova and of course if you've had weapons in the past to hurt Madison Keys not allow her to get into her plus one playing uh, you've been able to, you know, stop her run. Samsonova had some success, but Keys just outplayed her. And Keys was swinging, again, so well off of both wings, was moving well. I think she's been fantastic. I also think, you know, it was a first-round match, so it didn't get the hype it probably could have. But, like, let's not forget Coco Goff was up a set and a break on Ashley Barty in that first-round match. And Coco Goff has steamrolled this week as well as she finds herself in the semifinals, beats Anaconia yesterday in straight sets and just is serving well, Is on seems to have just hit another gear from a movement perspective. Oh my God, is she fluid around the court and just can go from defense to offense, can do so many different things. All three Americans intrigue me. And again, Shelby belongs on that list, so I suppose I'll throw a fourth one in there. All four Americans intrigue me. Which of the four are most dark horsey to you? Well, going, I mean, first I want to know where Goff is in. So she would play Madison Keys third round, um, and Keys plays Ken in first round. So it's that little section. Okay. So can I be honest? Please. No, no, no. no. Lie to me. Lie to me. (laughs) I've been so, I've been so demure thus far. I mean, I I have been on the journey with Madison Keys literally since day one. I was on Louis Armstrong Stadium when she nearly beat uh lucy safarova at the 2011 u.s open and she was i don't know eight nine years old i forgot um but i just feel like we have been through this for over a decade now with madison keys and i'm i gotta tell you i am sick of it (laughs) i just feel like she is you know brutally talented you know tremendous athlete fantastic person really easy to talk to I don't buy her as a dark horse here. I just don't. I just feel like, you know, you look at who she's had to beat to make it thus far this week in Adelaide. I mean, a flagging Svitolina, Teresa Martsinkova, 
a Samsonova who is still very up and down and relatively unproven week in, week out. I mean, I think the Coco Golf match, if she beats Coco and really like crushes her, then maybe, maybe I'd be more, I'd be looking at her. And I, and I certainly would give her the ups to beat uh, Sonia Kennan, which is going to be a rough one for, for Sonia. I mean, the, the points are about that are about to fall off her ranking. It's just like a cliff, but um, I, I really want more data on keys before I go in. I mean, I think she's just so easy to root for, for so many of the reasons that I just said, she's a phenomenal ball striker. And I think it's so easy to get seduced by that power and that technique. And you just feel like that, wow, if she could just put it together, anything is possible. And thus far, I mean, it's really been the same thing has been possible throughout the, the decade. I think, you know, her peak was obviously in 2017 when she made that US Open final. And I think what always holds me back about Madison is sort of, you know, one's greatest strength is also their greatest weakness, you know, where, you know, Kim Kleister's just to get the dig that she was too nice. I, I do feel like in many of these tough situations, Madison lacks that killer instinct and which is so seemingly at odds with her brutal game. I mean, you just would expect someone who hits the ball as hard as, as Madison to not be as soft for lack of a better word, you know, in these, in these tough matches, in these key moments, she's usually the one that folds. And so she's not one that I'm looking at necessarily at the draw and feeling like, wow, she's got it because conversely, Coco Goff, for all of the potential pitfalls in her own game, you know, wacky forehand technique, you know, still sort of like growing into herself. I mean, it'll be so, hopefully it'll be so fascinating to be able to talk about Coco in five or six years and be like, hey, remember when she was that gangly teenager and she's really, you know, grown into herself. But I think what's so important for Coco now that she continues to take into these tournaments is just that phenomenal mental strength and belief that she can go up to the line against Ash Barty and potentially beat her. And yes, Ash figured out the match and won it in the ends, but that's someone who I, that kind of energy is where I kind of, where I tend to go behind. Cause I feel like that's just, that carries you so much farther sometimes or most times than just raw talent. Cause I feel like Madison's raw talent has been so hard to ignore over the years that people tend to go really big on her and there, she really hasn't delivered. And she's had so much time and so many opportunities to do it, that it's, it's, it's rough for me to put her in the same conversation, certainly as a Benchich, um, so, or, or even an Azarenka. So let me just make the case quickly. A, how old is Madison Keys? Let's see if you can guess this. Top of your head. 26? 26 years old. That's smack dab prime in the career. Yeah, shout out to you, DK. What, did you work for the <laughs> WTA or something? What do you think she's ranked right now? She's not seated. <laughs> so, uh, 42? 70. She oh, is ranked God. 70th right now in the live rankings. That's too low. She's better than that. And just, yeah. again, from a fitness perspective, I'm telling you, she is fit again. She is healthy. And Samsonova played well yesterday. Samsonova was striking the ball extraordinarily well, was serving well. Yes, there were errors for both players. And yes, we didn't get a lot of, you know, five-plus shot rallies. But the way Keyes was defending out of the corners as well, I just haven't seen her play defense like that in years. And just the depth she was able to get on every ground stroke, even when she was on the run, she was playing confident, decisive tennis. And you're right. I think tonight's matchup with Goff is probably the most significant matchup I've seen in these opening two weeks because these are both yeah. two players who I want to see earn some momentum, some confidence going into this event. And I'm just saying for Madison Keyes why it's a dark horse pick. If she beats Kennan in round one— a, I've beaten the seed now. That's just a confidence-boosting win, even with the context of, you know, yes, we know Kennan hasn't played much in the past year, but still, the context of, well, I just beat the 11 seed now, or whatever, now I've got some momentum on my side. 
She'll have played Goff this week. Even if she loses this week, it's really tough to beat any player twice in a row. You've just seen them play, et cetera, et cetera. If she can get to Unless that Unless you're match, Jess Pagula and it's Carolina Pushkova. Exactly. Um, and then I think once you're in the fourth round, she would have had beaten two seeds. Like, at that point, now she's playing good ball. Like, I think the, the week opened up for her well to build momentum into it and then be confident heading into week two. And then again, it's very much an eye test thing. She's only been broken once. She's popping returns, just hitting the ball so cleanly. I think Keys is playing extraordinarily well. I do agree, though. This could be the year of Coco Goff. Like, I, I know I'm overreacting here, and she was so good at the start of last season, culminating in that first Grand Slam quarterfinal run at the French Open. I think she probably burnt herself out a little bit at the start of last season. I think she was a bit drained, and you could see that in just her energy level throughout the course of the end of last season. She's rejuvenated, and just athletically, she can do things other players can't, whether it be starting with her serve or just turning defense into offense. And, you know, Konya had the firepower to just, I mean, Konya's backhand. God, as Anna Konya hit a beautiful ball. Um, But Goff was there, and Goff was taking that pace and, providing some of her own behind it and mixing in the drop shots and she's a willing and comfortable volleyer i mean another like and she's 17 like she's still gonna get so much better that's the crazy part and you're starting to see some of those improvements manifest themselves i think she's hitting the forehand better although yes she still does slice it too much on the uh, on the on the return of serve but if she gets a look at a second serve and can step into that forehand it is now a weapon which is the next step for her Oh, I, I mean, I hope we get that third-round matchup, Keys-Goff, because I think, and I hope we get a fun one tonight because I think both of them could be very, very exciting. I think they're both dark horse picks. Wow, Alex Gruskin rooting for Sonia Kennan to lose all her points. Okay, I, I mean, would like to defer. Rude. <laughs> Let's go back to the 2018 offseason, State of the Union, myself, Jonathan Kelly, a tennis Twitter OG. We did... Uh, our state of the union, yeah. At the end, we we did our state of the union at the end of the year, and I was we were going who were the top ten best Americans, and I had Collins two, and and Kennan three, and like right away, Collins makes the Australian Open semifinal, and then like at the French Open, Kennan beats Serena, and all I said all year, I was like, I told you, I was like, I told you, they were the two, and so don't. Count me out on the. I still think Sonia Kennan is amazing. I just sounds like she, sounds like some Joe Kelly voodoo magic. That he's yeah, doing. I, <laughs> all I, these I, Americans over the line. Exactly. I just don't think Kennan is healthy yet. That's the big. That's the big reason for her. But by the way, I didn't throw Anisimova in there because go hit Apple Pods, search tennis, click on any pod. I promise you, every pod will tell you Anisimova is a dark horse. I think that goes without saying. Any final thoughts on the American women? I like Shelby, all of, all of the American women, Pagula. Obviously, Jen Brady's not going to be in the event, but I still think there are Americans poised to do well here. Yeah, no, I mean, I hate that Anisimova and Benjic, only one of them can make the third round. I mean, that's, yeah. that's rough. I mean, they both could be quarterfinalists easily, you know, at this tournament. I mean, I mean, looking at the section of the draw that, that Goff and Keys are in, I feel like if Bedosa doesn't make it out of that section, that might not be, you know, again, I'm a rough judge. That wouldn't be great, you know, because she has been playing really well in Sydney, doesn't have an overwhelming path to the fourth round. She does have bestie uh, Sarah Saribas Tormo as her seed um, to make that second week. So potentially an emotional match there to have to play your really close friend. 
um you know if, if keys is playing phenomenal playing that unwin an unhittable unwinnable tennis you know unbeatable tennis then um then hats off but i still feel like with momentum this is a section that Bedosa should should make it out of but potentially like to your point some really good first week stories um but again I, with coco Goff, i do want to add um that it's been such a roller coaster with her i feel like we've gone from coco Goff potential grand slam champion to coco Goff can't hit a forehand now coco Goff like mental giant like I, it feels like i do want to clarify that that's relative to who i feel that she's playing i do feel like she's trending up and is but maybe not exponentially going up and down every week it feels like that is sort of the pitfalls you you run into with a younger player you you there is recency bias like based on the last tournament oh she's trending down oh she's not doing she's not gonna do it oh well she's been she's phenomenal she's a future champion and that's just the rough part of being a 17 year old you know in this in this field you know we have a decade to analyze and and assess you but i think overall i think uh coco has taken a lot of hits you know in the last six months and is still coming back playing strong that that's that gives me big ups in in my book because i feel like that's you know Coco, for all of her successes, have has had some rough losses that really could derail a person. And for her to come back at the start of the season playing as well as she is, that's 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 a competitor, and that's a, that's a that's a strong athlete. So I, do, I definitely want to give her right. You've got those short memories, and you keep moving on. And yeah, I yeah. mean, there are other Americans. You know, Sloan Stevens was playing really well to end last season. Yes, she was off getting married, but I'm sure she had good preparation this off season. Will be ready to rock and roll and. Claire first Liu. round against Raducanu. I mean, that's I tweeted it last night. I was like, that's a that's a prime example of a match of why I ne would never bet on tennis because <laughs> I could make an argument for every conceivable score in either direction for that match because you just sure Raducanu is maybe you know been playing better the last few months, but also Sloan you know would be the underdog in that situation. But, but also Sloan is Sloan. You know, like there's just so many ways you can argue that one. That yeah, it's and I feel like we've been overdue. Um, a Sloan, a deep run from Sloan at a slam. So if it happens here, uh, more power to her. Certainly the scene of the crime, as it were, from when her, she made her first semifinal in 2013. Yeah, no, and again, you know, I think Claire Lou's been playing really well of late, and you've got the Madison Brangles, Allie Risks of the world out there floating around, and yeah, plenty of Americans up and down the draw. And so certainly it should be a fun tournament for American tennis fans, both of the men's and the women's side. All right, with that said, David, Hit me with the other names on your list. Who else you got? Who's next? I feel like you tricked me into an American uh, segment, but uh... yeah, it's, it was inevitable. It was inevitable. You Scott Morrison me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was what I was coming for, but um, who are my other picks? Um, I mean, there are some funny potential first rounds where I feel like I mean, either whether it's a Kaya Kanepi in the first round against sure. Angelique Kerber, who has not played to start the season, even though Kaya has not been winning a ton of matches in the last few months. I mean, it's Kaya Kanepi in the first round of a slam against the seed. You always got to look at her. You look at wild card storm standards in that same section, taking on uh, number two seed, Arena Sabalenka, who since we have potted last still has not found her serve and has only gotten worse um, in the delivery. I mean, in, in, in what will be a, a very partisan match, it's, that's a rough one for Arena, who's just coming off the trauma of having to play, you know, fan favorite Layla Fernandez at the US Open to now have to play an Aussie in Australia, when you're not serving great, that's going to be a rough one. Um, who are my other dark horse? So, I mean, my youngster is like a pretty obvious one, Clara Towson. I mean, she's sure. got Contavite in the second round. Um, 
and has Astra Charmer in the first. I feel like that's a winnable one for Clara. And this is an opportunity for her to finally do it on the big stage and, and get that big win. She's come so close and has had opportunities in the last few slams. For me, this is as good a time as ever for her to do it. And Net Contabine has been playing some really solid ball and has seemingly gotten better uh, with each match. But still, it's a new, it's still a relatively new situation for Annette to be a top 10 player. And that's that would be a, a, a real fresh opportunity for Clara. Uh, to take advantage of. I think two um, names that will be on everyone's list are Clara Tawson, who, of course, won multiple WTA titles last year. And, yeah, had to withdraw with injury in her warm-up event, but feels like has been on the cusp of the breakthrough ever since she beat Brady at the French Open, 9-7 back in 2020. Another American I meant to mention is Ann Lee, of course, who's in that Clara Tawson qualification, going to be popular on a lot of lists. If Lee beats Shin Wong and can get through, you know, and Sabalenka offers her 30 double faults, we're going to be talking about her heading into the third round. Like, that's very much a name. Can't you see the Tennis Channel desk segment already where they're doing the Ann Lee special? And Lee was injured in the fall, in the spring of 2021. Lee suffered a shoulder injury that kept her out of play after that. It was very frustrating. To... Yeah, that's me doing is, the impression. Is, was that your Stevie Weissman impression? No, before you went to Anley? Yeah, that's. I don't even know what that was, to be honest. Dubs. Um, yeah, exactly. That shows you where my brain's at at this point. Um, some other ones, I think, just from a draw perspective, again, names we could be talking about. If Jill Teichman beats Azarenka in round two, and Teichman's got to get there first as well, as I believe she's got Petra Martic round one. But if she gets through that... Svitolina's not playing her best tennis. I don't think Svitolina played poorly against Keys. I think Keys was just lights out, but that feels like a winnable match. And then, you know, again, after that, you would get potentially an Ostapenko, a Krejcikova. It does feel like there's a world where we see a Teichman run at this event. Anaconia's draw is just so brutal. Shelby Rogers round one, prob- probably Collins round two, and then likely Conteve or Tossin round three. Like, that's just brutal, but she's a name playing well. The last I got one another I was, one for you, but go on. Oh, oh no, 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 no. Because I've got I've, – I was going to say I've got one – well, I've got three more names on the list, but only one more I want to talk about seriously. So give me your final name. I had somebody else, I think, or it might have been this one to begin with, and I forgot her. This is why you should always write things down. But I'm going to go with uh, Alexandra Sastovich, who okay. could potentially play Sakari in the second round, is in the on Jabor sakari section, which based on how Jabor and Sakari have pulled up to start the season – not confident either of those two make it to the fourth round, but Sastovich loves playing in Australia. This is, you know, a potentially really great match. I'm waiting for, as I tweeted a few weeks ago, I'm waiting for the Aussies to really adopt Sastovich and give her a fun, culturally appropriate nickname like Sasa or something. I feel like she's she's overdue that. But I, yeah, that's, she's definitely one I feel like can finally uh, cross the threshold to make a deep run at a slam. Yeah, I, I think that's a good name. You know him on the Kaya Yuvan bandwagon. I, I think she's – reminds me a lot of Benchich. Like there's a lot of Benchich in Yuvan. Yeah. And, and so uh, if she's striking the ball well – and I think she's a little more fluid. I just don't think she has as much power. Um, but anyways, she's playing good tennis. We we forget. It's not that we forget. Just a lot happens in between. Donna Vekic, when we last saw her, was winning a WTA title right at the end of last season, and obviously has been a top thirty player and is unseated in this event. I believe faces yeah, Ali Risk round one would then have Ostapenko, Lorshmadova round two, both winnable matches for her, no doubt. That could be a storyline heading into the third round. But then the last one. And it's not exactly a dark horse because she's seeded and she just won the silver medal and she has made a Grand Slam final. But I'm in on the Druce. Like, I think Marketa Vondrusova is just 
vastly like somehow she's fallen out of the conscious of hey we've got all these young players right the Kennens of the world the Osakas of the world the Andrescu's Radicanu Leila Fernandez's Sabalenka's it's like well you know Von Drusova also made a Grand Slam final like let's not forget and I just think there's a physicality she brings like everything I said about Kasakina I would apply to Von Drusova the difference being Kasakina will go big down the line Von Drusova will throw in a backhand drop shot like that's the the fundamental difference they'll shape the points the same way it's just ultimately their finishing shot is a bit different but there's a physicality Von Drusova brings that in Australia is always required and I just like again Priscilla Han round one yeah Han had the big victory over Kvitova but that's a very winnable match Samsonova round two is Danger City, you know. But if she can get through that, an Ann Lee or a Sabalenka third round, it depends which Sabalenka we see. I just like could see Von Drusova making a push here. Definitely. I mean, she's probably. I mean, other than maybe Layla Fernandez, the, the seed that I am most confident in potentially seeing in the second week. I mean, I think just based on the way we what we have seen from Sabalenka and what we haven't seen from Kerber. You know, you got to give the the advantage to the, to the lower seeds in this situation. I mean, I'm still, I, I still feel so traumatized by Bondrusova because there was that phenomenal clay court season that she had to make that French Open final and really believed that she, you know, if you ha- if you asked me to pick between her and Krechkova, I certainly would have given more of a shot to Bondrusova to win the French Open before her run than Krechkova at hers two years later. There was something about how when she just stepped to the line and you know. She's, you know, not the the biggest or strongest girl on tour. And you just saw something about the way she stepped on the baseline. I said, oh, no, she's about to get destroyed. And she she did. Barty, like, really had her way with her for those two sets. Um, Sort of an interesting character, you know, sometimes can get a bit frustrated, a bit, like, dejected and down on herself. But, you know, is is a tricky opponent in the way. It's kind of interesting to have Layla and Marquetta opposite one another, two lefties, Mm -hmm. you know, with that sort of um, that interesting technique. Yeah, I, I would, I would. I mean, again, to be in the Sabalenka section right now is, is a gift from baby Jesus. I mean, just the way that for all of the, the confidence and and optimism I had that Arena would come to, into twenty twenty two playing fantastic tennis that has yet to materialize. Hopefully, she does bring her serve to Melbourne. It wasn't in any of her other matches, so I think if she, you know, if she's still serving like that, it's the sky is the limit, and it does seem like the kind of a draw that Avon Drusova would be happy to take advantage of it and and find herself in the second week and has, and has been deep in slams before yeah I, I i buy that one as a dark horse absolutely yeah, i like it by the way you know again we talked about this at the start the idea you know you talk about some of the hidden gem rivalries and i don't know why this just popped into my mind but i just kind of want to end on this a Barty osaka round four like that would that's just it felt like we've been robbed it feel it feels like a had we not had a pandemic we would have seen them play at least once since that beijing final in 2019 they haven't played in two full seasons david and these are two players who ostensibly are two of the locks of the decade right two of the players you know if healthy playing their best they will be competing for grand slam titles here in the 2020s and like They've only played four times in their career. Two and two, career head-to-head overall. Osaka got the last win in Beijing back 2019, end of the season. I hope we get that matchup. Like, I really do hope we get to see that match throughout the course of this event. And I was going to ask you for a prediction now that the draw is out. I try to be kinder than that to my uh, to my co-hosts nowadays, not put them on the spot like that. If you'd like to offer a prediction, please do. But any final thoughts as you look at this Australian Open women's singles draw? Um... I mean, on Barty Osaka, I mean, yeah, I, I, 
like I said, part of me feels deeply unconfident that we'll see it. But yeah, I, it's interesting. Last year, especially, we did get to see sort of the development of the Sabalenka Barty rivalry and to see Arena figure out how to overcome that game in, in seemingly stages after having figured her out earlier, had to kind of like relearn how to beat this new and improved Barty from Miami to Stuttgart to Madrid, where she finally did get the win. Um, yeah, I mean, we love a contrast in styles and who would give that better than, than Barty Osaka. I mean, I, I certainly prefer the power of a Naomi. I just feel like, you know, that would be a great opportunity for Naomi to really put the stamp on as, as being the definitive player of her decade. I feel like Barty has really made a push to, to rest that, that claim from Naomi just by, by virtue of sort of being more consistent, being that player for all surfaces of the way that Naomi has not been yet. And seems quite frustrated by in a way that I didn't feel that she should have been last year and, and really got kind of overwhelmed by that um, disappointment. What is my big, bold prediction for this tournament? I, I mean, I feel like the, I feel like the odds are in the favor of the dark horse. I feel like this will be a dark horse Australian open. I just think if, if you're asking me to compare the top 10 to 11 to 30, I think 11 to 30 has, has really proven themselves a lot more to start the season than the top 10 overall. So I, I would be surprised to see a top eight player, other than Barty, win the title. It's fair. I mean, yeah, as you look at the top eight, boy, if Conteve can just complete her run with a Grand Slam title here, talk about one of the all-time oh, five-month I mean, runs. Yeah, yeah that, that's a story of stories. Muguruza got robbed of a slam last year, so I wouldn't be. It wouldn't shock me. The good news is, she, no, she should have won a slam last year. If she's healthy, I oh, think which she I thought you meant like Open. in a match. I was like, leave Barbara Krejcikova alone. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> she suffered enough. Talk robbed. about the rivalries: Krejcikova yeah. versus the world last season. Um, yeah, I'm not ready to make my pick, and I don't have to yet. I don't have to do it until Saturday's mini break podcast. But we know it's not going to be Kennan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can knock her off the list. Um, Gil Gross, not to get full circle here, came on the show yesterday. He's like, "You don't have two minutes on Amina Bektis for me," and I was like, "Of course I do." Um, I don't know why I felt the need to inform you of that. But I haven't been as qualies focused in it as I have been in years past. Somehow it's just not the same without your Cecile Carantanchevas and your Ala Kudrasvas, <laughs> your, your Nastasia Burnett's, you know, my friends, my old friends. When they're not there, uh, it's like, I feel sad. You know what they say about tennis, bet the over. Um, oh, sorry, that was really stupid. Hey, great shot, <laughs> as we say on our other show. Uh, yeah, I know you like that one. Um, yeah, I mean, all right, give me your winner. You know what? I'm putting you on the spot. My winner? Oh. Um, I mean, I, um, um, on my tennis.com expert picks now available, I assume on tennis.com, although I've been off this afternoon, I did pick Barty to win. I just feel like at this point it is Barty against the field, you know, for better or for worse, that is the situation we're in. So I did pick her to win just because I feel like the section that she's in, she'll only have to play one of the players who are going to come out of that, that, uh, that devil section between <laughs> Benchich and Naomi. And then, you know, that that second quarter is that second section is really cake got to be honest there and then mm-hmm. you know if it's when she gets the semifinal she has proven the better player against the best players right now i think it's sort of the situation where if you're going to get barty it's sort of similar to serena loath as i am to make that comparison where if you're going to get if you're going to knock barty out you got to do it early in the tournament coco almost did it last week i feel like that's what's kind of what's what would need to happen here for that result to change, I don't see it happening based on who she plays in her first three rounds. So, yeah, party for the win for me. 
It's a fair pick, David. Well, with that said, what can we expect from you over the course of the two weeks other than I'm locking you into at least one mini-break podcast, maybe per week. We'll see, uh, but at least one. But what else, uh, what else can we expect from you throughout the course of the two weeks? Well, i got to come up with a new inflection of that's the break. That's number one. And number two, <laughs> I am working on a pre-tournament feature on the one and only Annette Contavide. I had the pleasure of speaking to her this week. Um, I might, as I said, I think last pod, I might uh, rope in Roman Safulin uh, if he qualifies. But yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of um, a lot of seed planting for me in the first week based on how this draw shook out. Try to pro- uh, try to profile some players who may get the uh, the big names, the big uh, the big ticket items, and see if you can if they end up pulling off the upset. You heard it here first. So that and all of that will be available on tennis.com, promoted on Twitter and Instagram at dk double ns. That's dk t double ns. I love it. As always, David Kane, thank you for taking the time to join us on the show. I assume I'll call you in an hour when Djokovic's visa is rejected or something like that. But His or mine. <laughs> yes, exactly. But as always, be safe, be healthy. Dose Dania, para show. Spasiba. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis.com and Tennis Channel editorial producer David Kane. A huge thank you to him for being as generous with his time as he is. Sincerely, this is his fourth Crack Rackets podcast of the week. He'll be joining me on a fifth later on Friday's mini break podcast to discuss the latest developments in the Novak Djokovic saga. We're going to speak with him throughout the two weeks of the event as well. So huge thank you to David. And sincerely, if you're not reading his work, you're missing out. Go read everything he writes over on tennis.com of course this is just one of our like seven preview podcasts for this grand slam we're talking uh, men's and women's contenders over on the mini break podcast feed we'll have the dark horse conversation with chris otto on the men's side up here later today we talk top americans with jeff sackman most intriguing players with nate walrith over on the mini break podcast feed draw previews coming this weekend as well over there so if you've missed any of our coverage rest assured we've covered it all you can catch up on everything on our website crackrackets.com of course college tennis season really kicking off this weekend as well some fantastic matchups happening across the country we talked about them a bit on our gsp episodes this week if you missed any of those find them uh, here on this feed or on our website again college contender series on the website power five interviews all available on the cracked interviews podcast feed i've spoken with over 50 men's and women's power five head coaches before the start of this season i promise there's going to be at least one in there for you to enjoy so if that interests you check it out and by the way 19 players with college tennis ties in the men's and women's singles action college tennis works folks get in now before you, there's no room left for you uh go watch the local college tennis in your area of course again all of that content available on the website crackrackets.com if you need the more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at cracked rackets you want to message me i'm at al gruskin a shout out as always to our super producer daniel westoff for the <laughs> of an energy job he does day in day out with all that said, for my fantastic guests, David Kane, super producer da- Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we'll talk to you all a bit later. Thanks, everyone.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.